Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, a continuing medical education uh, exercise of the Department of Medicine. And on behalf of the department, and particularly the section of rheumatology, uh, we, we welcome you today to this uh, very interesting uh, talk, which we'll about to we'll, we'll, we will about to have. Um, uh, before we get started with our Grand Rounds presentation, however, and in uh, pursuit of uh, culinary excellence, um, as you all know, we have this uh, wonderful program that uh, is ongoing, uh, celebrating uh, excellence in uh, eating habits and choices. Uh, this morning, for those of you who partook, you, you know what we're talking about, healthy Waffles, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, but uh, our uh, trivia question today was list one of the seven tips for mindful eating. One of the seven tips for mindful eating. And the winner of the uh, uh, very hotly contested uh, uh, competition was uh, Marshall Ward. Marshall, whose answer was enjoy each and every meal. And uh, come on down, Marshall. Uh, you're the recipient not only of the uh, documentation of the seven principles of mindful eating and a mindfulness exercise, but also an organic dark chocolate Panama chocolate bar. I'll be much more mindful now. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, here today to introduce our speaker is uh, our section chief of rheumatology, Nicole Orzakowski, herself a product of uh, internal medicine and rheumatology training at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, can come and uh, introduce Dr. Gabriel. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> and it is my pleasure to introduce today's Grand Round speaker, Dr. Shereen Gabriel. Uh, Dr. Gabriel earned her medical degree from the University of Saskatchewan. Um, she completed her internship at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and then residency and uh, rheumatology fellowship at Mayo Clinic. She subsequently then spent uh, two years as a Mayo Foundation scholar at Wellesley Hospital in Toronto while she simultaneously earned her master's degree in epidemiology and biostatistics. Dr. Gabriel, as you can see from her slide, is currently a professor of medicine and epidemiology at Mayo, where she's also the William J. and Charles H. Mayo Endowed Professor, and she's held that position since 2005. She became dean of Mayo Medical School in 2012 and was president of the American College of Rheumatology from 2008 to 2009. In 2011, the Government Accountability Office appointed Dr. Gabriel to the Methodology Committee of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, a part of the Affordable Care Act, and she became its first chair. She also serves on the National Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases Advisory Council. Dr. Gabriel is an internationally renowned researcher. She's a compassionate and thoughtful clinician uh, and a standard bearer for health sciences research. She's been described as a visionary and a leading thinker on patient-centered healthcare. Dr. Gabriel has mentored dozens of individuals uh, who themselves have gone on to have incredibly successful careers. And she developed uh, the large and successful clinical research training and career development programs at Mayo. She served as co-PI and director of education uh, for the NIH funded CTSA. In her first year as Dean of the Mayo Medical School, she launched an ambitious program to design, implement, and disseminate a new education model to pre prepare future physicians to achieve uh, the triple aim of better care, healthier people and communities, and more affordable care. And this initiative was recognized by the American Medical Association through receipt of the Accelerating, Chain uh, Accelerating Change in Medical Education Award. Dr. Gabriel's research is largely NIH-funded. She is a prolific writer with over 250 peer-reviewed publications, and one of her research interests includes the topic of today's medical grand rounds, and we're honored to have you here with us, Dr. Gabriel. Thank you.
Well, that was, that was very kind of you, so thank you very much. It's really my pleasure to be here. Um, it's, uh, it's just such a wonderful area. This is my second visit, I think, in the last year, and it's, uh, it's pretty in the wintertime and it's pretty in the summertime, so we'll, we'll see. So it's my, again, it's my pleasure to be here and uh, to talk about an area of research that uh, has really consumed a lot of my research time and uh, research interest over, over the past decade. Uh, these are my disclosures. Um, as I think you heard in the introduction, I'm, uh, I'm an epidemiologist, so I'm an observational researcher, and I'd just uh, like to open with uh, these wonderful quotes about the importance of observation in understanding medicine and in studying medicine and advancing medicine. And, um, and so Alfred Nobel said, once uh, one can state without exaggeration that the observation and search for similarities and differences is a basis of all human knowledge. Uh, nothing has such power to broaden the mind as the ability to investigate systematically what we do in epidemiology and in research, I guess, overall, uh, that truly comes under thy observation in life, and then the importance of uh, rigid, rigid, rigidly accurate observation uh, and logic in uh, advancing and understanding uh, our world through science. And so what's the observation that I'm talking about? That is, uh, you know, many years ago, clinicians, rheumatology clinicians were noticing that, you know, their patients with rheumatoid arthritis seemed to be having more heart attacks than they might expect or more heart problems than they might expect. And so that really launched uh, a, a, a new research uh, direction that's just grown, that's just mushroomed over the last 10, 15 years, uh, linking systemic inflammation uh, characterized by diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and heart disease. And it, uh, that particular uh, pathway uh, sort of intersected with the work that's being done in cardiology on CRP and heart disease. And, and so I go to a lot of meetings now with Paul Ridker. I was just at one in Boston two days ago with him. Um, so my objectives today are to summarize the research evolution of this particular observation uh, by describing the risks and outcomes of heart disease in people with RA compared to people without, uh, considering uh, major outcomes like cardiovascular death, ischemic heart disease, and heart failure, uh, to, to describe the role of cardiovascular risk factors, cardiovascular risk score, and potential markers uh, to help us understand, to predict and prevent heart disease in RA patients, and then uh, to give you a sense of implications for clinical care and clinical research. Uh, as a result of these findings. I'm going to discuss a lot of my own uh, research findings. As I said, I've been working on this for uh, at least a dozen years or so. <clears throat> I'm an epidemiologist, and much of my research comes is based on the Rochester Epidemiology Project, which is based in uh, Olmsted County, uh, a community of about 125,000 individuals, uh, where the Rochester Epidemiology Project, um, uh, uh, basically, which has been an NIH-funded initiative for over 40 years, actually, uh, enumerates everybody in the county and allows us to uh, provide an essentially complete medical history uh, for everybody in the county uh, regarding where, regardless of where they're seen um, uh, clinically. So we have an essentially complete medical history of all of those 124,000 individuals going back uh, uh, over 40 years. And uh, my study design, very high-level study design, is as shown here. So we've assembled uh, an incidence cohort of people with rheumatoid arthritis, and it's a, it's a growing cohort, so we're adding to it all the time and adding follow-up all the time. Um, rheumatoid arthritis cases first diagnosed way back in the 50s and, and going all, all the way to the present. Um, we have a matched uh, non-RA cohort, all from the same underlying population, of course, uh, around of the same time period with the same follow-up. And because the REP data resources allow for epidemiologic studies of virtually every disease that we care to study, we are able to uh, compare our results to cohorts that were built by our cardiovascular epi colleagues in CHF and MI. So those are the comparable co uh, uh, cohorts. And we look at things, the obvious things like uh, risk factors and, uh, and outcomes. And all of this work has been, um, well, my work's been funded by NIAMS. The uh, uh, CHF and uh, MI cohorts are uh, funded by uh, NHLBI. 
So with 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 that little bit of out, uh, overview, I'll start with the first outcome and just highlight some of the work that, that we've done. So cardiovascular death, cardiovascular aging. Well, we've known for a long time uh, that people with RA, shown here in yellow, uh, with, with the compar comparison group, uh, non-RA in green, I have a shorter life expectancy uh, than you would than you would expect of people of the same age and sex from the same population, and we we found you know several years ago now that much of that increased uh, uh, mortality is uh, based is due to cardiovascular cardiovascular death. So this is survival free of cardiovascular death with obviously significantly poorer uh, survival in persons with RA than those without. Um, we also wanted to look at, and the, uh, um, this is also a few years ago, uh, how that looks compared to the general population. And I'm just trying to figure out if, uh, oh yeah, that works. Um, so here we have <clears throat> RA in yellow for females and for males, and this uh, shaded area is a 95% confidence interval, and these are mortality rates uh, per hundred person years, and the green dotted line in both of these is, is the general population. And so we all know that people are living longer and we're able to, people are less likely to die uh, now of cardiovascular disease than they were. But what we found was people with rheumatoid arthritis, that, that wasn't the case. And so we described this widening gap in mortality um, people with RA compared to uh, uh, people without. Um, and just uh, kind of uh, finishing up the survival bit, uh, each we, we also wanted to look at survival by decade of RA incidence. Are we doing any better or are we moving the needle, if you will? And each one of these colors here uh, represents a different decade of incidence of rheumatoid arthritis. And you can see that sort of decade after decade after decade, we really weren't moving the needle much at all in terms of uh, survival in persons with rheumatoid arthritis. And only in the most recent decade, uh, uh, my, my, my absolute favorite color there, fuchsia, um, uh, are we beginning to see uh, uh, some improvement? And that's, that's uh, you know, who knows what that's due to, but, you know, I think we can probably uh, guess. Uh, the treatments have, you know, changed dramatically, and even the approach to treatment has changed dramatically. So that's, that's extremely encouraging. So with respect to cardiovascular death and cardiovascular aging, what have we learned? Uh, overall mortality, and actually even with that improvement, is still worse than the general population um, in people with RA compared to those without. And there is this widening gap where things are improving in the general population and, and only a little bit in RA. Uh, higher rates of mortality appear to be cardiovascular in origin, and there, is some, er, there are some early indications of improved mortality in the last, in the last uh, decade. Um, so we went on to uh, try to understand uh, heart disease a little bit more clearly. So with respect to ischemic heart disease, um, uh, learned about the prevalence of ischemic heart disease. So in this study, uh, compared the prevalence of ischemic heart disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, 603 of our incident cases, <clears throat> and matched non-RA patients, again, drawn from the same, same community uh, at index date. And we found that even at the time, this is so at, at diagnosis date, and it ends to say at the time that people with RA were diagnosed with, with their disease with RA, they were already at a more than threefold um, odds of having had a hospitalized MI. It was usually in the year or two right before that diagnosis, in fact, uh, and almost a six-fold uh, higher risk of having had a silent MI, so kind of reminiscent of what we see in pe persons with diabetes. Um, and also reminiscent of what we see in patients with diabetes is that they tended to, they were less likely to complain of pain, they were less likely to complain of angina, uh, but looked like they were, once once things were diagnosed, uh, they were treated about the same as everybody else, just as likely to have a revast procedure and so on. Uh, and this is looking at the same outcomes, but not at incidence date, but rather going forward in time, and we see about the same, saw about the same patterns. And so again, people with RA, more likely to have a silent MI, more likely to have a sudden cardiac death than their matched counterparts, and significantly less likely uh, to have uh, angina. 
Um, then we looked at, okay, if persons with rheumatoid arthritis have more MIs, more ischemic heart disease, what's their outcome after um, uh, these diagnoses? And so here, I showed, remember I showed you in the very first slide that uh, for some of our analyses, we use the non-RA cohort as a comparator, but for some other questions, it's important to use the CHF or MI cohort. So here we wanted to know people with RA and MI, do they look the same or different? Do they have the same outcomes as people who have MI from the same community, age and sex matched, and so on, but, but who do not have RA? And so the different comparator group here, these are people with MI in our community from our MI cohort. And indeed, uh, outcome after myocardial infarction, as you might guess, I guess, is uh, worse in persons with MI about, uh, with a standardized mortality ratio of about 1.5. So uh, again, I'm just sort of sort of packaging up here uh, a, a decade's worth of research in in in, uh, in a short period of time. What did we and others learn about ischemic heart disease in RA? Well, the risk is clearly increased. Uh, ischemic heart disease often precedes the formal diagnosis of RA. I say formal because we don't actually know biologically when that disease starts. Um, and can, can present, uh, often presents as, as uh, sudden cardiac death and is often silent, more often silent. Um, am I, the uh, I didn't show you these data, but the clinical presentation looks about the same. We also wondered if, you know, patients present differently or are treated differently. We really didn't see that. Uh, and then mortality is poorer for patients with RA who have an MI compared to non-RA patients who have an MI. And then again, as I mentioned, it seemed like um, uh, management was about the same. We uh, I looked at that as well. It's in white because I didn't share the full data there. Um, and so then we went on to, to look at another cardiovascular outcome, heart failure, which is actually the area which I'm most interested in um, uh, within patients with rheumatoid arthritis, heart failure and myocardial infarction. And again, looking at this large cohort and comparing folks with RA and folks without, we found that the cumulative incidence of heart failure, and here you can see again RA in yellow and non-RA in green, followed over time, um, beginning at incidence for RA patients, index date for non-RA patients. And this just, uh, you know, as usual, tells you the number of people under follow-up over this, over this uh, time period. And in these analyses, we looked at uh, uh, our, uh, heart failure, rather, uh, diagnosed according to the Framingham criteria, and uh, we all of the analyses, these analyses are adjusted f uh, correcting for uh, risk of death from other causes. And uh, also, just as a reminder, the excess risk that we saw here uh, remained even after we adjusted for what we've already perceived, uh, uh, demonstrated, the increased presence of ischemic heart disease uh, and other risk factors. So, so um, this was a, a, a pretty strong finding. And we wanted to study it a bit more, so we started to look at uh, what does heart failure look like in persons with rheumatoid arthritis? Does it look any different? And indeed, it appeared that it did. Um, uh, when we look at the distribution of ejection fraction at the onset of heart failure, so what the cardiologists refer to as heart failure with preserved versus reduced ejection fraction, we sound, found that persons with rheumatoid arthritis were much more likely to have a heart failure diagnosis with preserved ejection fraction, about twice as likely. And again, if you think of the comparator group, so here we were comparing our RA heart failure patients to non-RA heart failure patients from the same population, from the same underlying population, and and this was a highly significant finding. And we also found that the presentation uh, was a little bit different, perhaps related to the uh, a diastolic dysfunction uh, that, that is, tends to be more prevalent in persons with RA. Uh, RA patients were less likely to sort of be classical uh, HF in their presentation, uh, less likely to be obese, hypertensive, or even have a history of ischemic heart disease, and uh, their signs and symptoms seemed to be a bit less uh, typical, and perhaps as a result of that, they are less likely to have had an echo um, and to receive uh, uh, cardiovascular meds. Um, <clears throat> similar to what we did with MI, we wanted to look at the outcome of persons with RA uh, and heart failure compared to persons without RA and heart failure, 
And uh, so this analysis compares, uh, looks at hospitalizations, so 577 hospitalizations uh, for heart failure in R RA patients uh, versus uh, uh, non-RA patients, about 1,700, and uh, looked at the rate of hospitalization and the number of days and so on, and you can see that RA patients experienced a higher rate of hospitalization, again, as you might expect. So 1.09 hospitalizations per year as compared to non-RA patients with heart failure, about 0.9 uh, per year, and 20% 20, 20 more hospitalizations uh, in, uh, in total, so a hazard of about 1.2 uh, compared to non-RA patients. Uh, and of course, average length of stay is also significantly longer in persons with RA. So here you have um, RA in, in red and non-RA in, uh, um, in, in blue. And it's, well, let me see. Did I? Yeah. That's right. Uh, and then over here, we just broke up rheumatoid arthritis into rheumatoid factor negative versus rheumatoid factor positive. In most of our analyses, the RF negative uh, patients actually look more like controls, and, and the differences are um, uh, only in the RF positive patients, and that's, that's what you're seeing there. Uh, also, mortality after heart failure is significantly worse in persons with RA. Um, in fact, 30-day mortality is about 2.6-fold higher if uh, somebody with RA has heart failure compared to uh, somebody without RA with heart failure in our community. And you can see that the mortality curves, you know, separate very early and uh, continue to be significantly different uh, over time. Um, and then we try to uh, understand what is it about the myocardial dysfunction? Does it, how does it look different? And is there something that we could understand about uh, uh, the myocardial dysfunction, persons with RA that might help us identify it earlier and perhaps uh, intervene at a time when, when you might be able to change that outcome? Um, so we did uh, look at uh, left ventricular diastolic dysfunction and found that RA patients were much more likely to have left ventricular diastolic dysfunction by echo. So this was actually a prospective study compared to individuals uh, of the same age and sex. And you can see that's about an odds of 1.6. And even after adjustment, it only went down to 1.4. And this high prevalence of LVDD and RA and kind of the lack of sensitivity to routine echo. So it was hard to pick up. Uh, led us to try to uh, identify better, better tools to detect subclinical myocardial dysfunction, both systolic and diastolic, in persons with RA. So uh, that led us to our cardiology colleagues, who have actually been collaborators all along, to think about, is there something more that we can do? Is there a better way that we can detect early myocardial dysfunction in, in persons with RA? Um, and they suggested strain imaging, uh, echo with strain imaging. And for those of you who don't know, I know the rheumatologists like me, you know, don't really know this stuff, but um, just a, a little bit of an aside, so just to let you know what strain is. Uh, strain is basic, basically refers to the relative deformation of the myocardium or any substance, I guess, uh, during contraction and relaxation. It's a dimensionless quality. It's just a uh, described as a percent compared to the resting state. And uh, what you have to remember is the more negative, the better. So the more, ne more negative strain is normal in, in, this, uh, in this case. It's more sensitive for systolic function assessment, but I think useful in some ways for both. And, and this is, you know, cardiologists give you these cool slides, but this gives you a sense of what they're talking about. Uh, so this is normal where, you know, the myocardium stretches and gets longer and shorter. And of course here it's moving, but there's no, there's no uh, uh, lengthening and shortening. And a myocardial strain, oops, pardon me, is described uh, as both longitudinal, radial, and uh, circumferential. And we did a study with, um, uh, it was published, uh, I guess, earlier this year uh, with uh, one of the cardiology uh, fellows, Noel Fine, who's another great Canadian. He's uh, back up in Calgary now. And uh, this isn't the clearest, but uh, basically, if you look at on the right-hand side here, um, RA patients are, are displayed in triangles. The triangles are the, are the top ones here. Should have made them bigger. 
um, and, and controls in, in the circles. And if you look at both basal, uh, middle, and apical strain, uh, there is um, less negative, so worse, <laughs> strain pattern in persons with RA uh, compared to uh, people without. And uh, that's true in both the LV and the uh, RV uh, below in the panel below. And these are just the same data, but shown in numbers. Um, and uh, oh, I'm not sure why the numbers, got, the letters overlap there, but uh, this is a control, non-RA, and this is uh, the, RA, the RA group. And again, you can see that there's significantly, uh, significant differences in both global long, uh, uh, global long LV strain and global long RV strain, and lots of differences along along the path. With the, the biggest differences appearing to be sort of in the apical in the apical segment. So, for some reason, the RA hearts are just not stretching and relaxing to the degree that um, would be expected. And this study uh, um, was. For, uh, on people with RA who do not have a past history of any cardiovascular disease uh, compared to controls. Um, and uh, this sort of led us to look at the literature and see how strain is being used and kind of learn from our cardiology colleagues. And um, there's, uh, there's um, quite a bit of use of this technique in, in cardio-oncology, uh, where detection of sub subclinical LV uh, dysfunction using strain imaging is helping them to uh, modify their treatments. Uh, some of the treatments, of course, that, that are used are cardiotoxic, and this, these are just examples from uh, very recent papers that are demonstrating some algorithms and guidelines on how strain can be used to modify uh, treatment in persons with, uh, with uh, uh, cancer. So um, with regard to the strain story, uh, as I mentioned, both global LV strain and RV strain were impaired in persons with rheumatoid arthritis compared to controls, indicating differences in subclinical myocardial contractility. So again, these were people who had no history of cardiovascular disease. Uh, in contrast to controls in whom LV strain was uniform from base to apex, there seemed to be this pattern in persons with RA uh, with strain being uh, preserved in the base and worst uh, in the apex, and these unique patterns have been seen in other conditions. Uh, there's in amyloidosis, for example, this pattern is the same, and 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 so that might be helpful uh, to help us understand what's going on. And then, interestingly, when we did a regression analysis looking at these strain patterns, we found that. Uh, a significant, statistically significant correlation between global LV strain and disease activity measures, so HAC or DAS, uh, as well as use of uh, 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 steroids, uh, methotrexate, radiologic damage, joint swelling. So it was seemed to be associated with uh, uh, worse RA disease. So heart failure, what have we learned and what are we continuing to learn? Um, increased risk, certainly an increased risk of heart failure in uh, persons with RA even after multiple adjustment. Uh, the clinical presentation appears to be a bit different. It's much more likely to be associated with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, with respect to outcome, mortality is poorer. Uh, RA patients without clinically evident cardiovascular disease have a higher pattern of this, of, of a higher prevalence rather, of left ventricular diastolic dysfunction, and it's possible that strain imaging might be helpful to detect uh, early dysfunction. Uh, RA patients with heart failure do tend to be ma managed somewhat less aggressively, with a higher rate and have a higher rate of hospitalizations and hospital stays. So with all of that information, we turn to, well, how do we predict this better? How do we prevent this disease? Are there ways that we can do it? Um, yeah, well, the first, first uh, approach, of course, is looking at cardiovascular risk factors. That's what we look at in the general population to help us identify persons with higher risk and, uh, compared to those with lower and perhaps intervene. And these are just uh, some, of our, these are some of our own data and some published data on cardiovascular risk factors and people with RA compared to people without. And the short um, conclusion is that cardiovascular risk factors don't really explain uh, this excess risk. And so most cardiovascular risk factors, with the exception of smoking, smoking, there's higher prevalence of smoking among um, uh, RA patients, but with, the ex with that exception, 
you know, people with RA don't tend to have uh, uh, more hypertension, more lipids, uh, uh, more diabetes, or anything like that. So it was very hard to exp that doesn't explain the excess risk. And it's a very large study from the nurses um, health study, large report from the nurses health study that basically says the same thing. The uh, cardiovascular risk factors are similar. Um, in addition to the risk factors being similar, a couple of the risk factors have actually actually behave in a bio, in a paradoxical manner, and so the first one I'll describe here is um, um, BMI. I think I'll actually do it this way. And so these are data showing uh, survival probability on the vertical axis and survival time on the horizontal axis from Gus Escalante and, and, and colleagues in Texas, and showing that actually with respect to rheumatoid arthritis, uh, the people at highest risk for mortality and cardiovascular mortality in particular are those with the lowest uh, BMI uh, compared to those with the highest. And in our uh, cohort, we looked at that same question, and so here you have a low BMI and high BMI and RA in green here and non-RA in yellow. I just switched the colors to make sure you were paying attention. <laughs> and you can see again the same pattern that uh, with respect to RA, uh, the highest risk is in the, in the low BMI uh, uh, population, which is uh, different than what you expect in the general population. Um, the bigger problem is uh, the lipids. And so lipids are difficult to interpret, uh, need to be interpreted differently in the context of uh, systemic inflammation than, uh, than without that. And so uh, just a couple of studies that we published here, uh, my uh, colleague Elena Miosietova led this effort. Uh, hazard ratio for cardiovascular disease and total cholesterol. And again, you see the highest hazards with the lowest total cholesterol uh, in, in this population, which is not what you would expect in the general population. We went on to try and describe that, understand that a little bit better, and um, I didn't blow up the bottom end of this curve. I probably should, but this is a, this describes the interaction between lipids and uh, uh, inflammation, and I'll just explain it a little bit. Here, in the yellow dotted line, you have total cholesterol to HDL, okay? So this is total cholesterol to HDL of two, uh, of two and a total cholesterol to HDL of six. So in the general population, you would expect this to be bad, total cholesterol to HDL ratio of, of six higher, and this to be good. And in fact, um, when you look at uh, persons with RA, that's exactly what you see. So if I, you know, the scale isn't quite right, but if I blow this up, uh, there are real differences here where this is hazard for cardiovascular vascular disease, and so the green line is on the top. That means it's you have a higher hazard, higher risk for having cardiovascular disease if your total cholesterol to HDL ratio is high. Exactly what we'd expect. And again, this is for RA patients who have low levels of inflammation, at least as estimated by ESR, so ESR of, of 10 or so. But when you get into this, the area of uh, very high ESR, so periods of high uh, 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 levels of systemic inflammation, um, that pattern completely switches. And so your total cholesterol to HDL ratio of 2, which generally is what you would expect to confer lower risk uh, in periods of high inflammation, actually confer, uh, confers a, a higher risk. And so, again, uh, this pattern is what we and others have seen and in, in, in is important to be able to interpret uh, uh, lipid, lipid levels uh, in the context of the inflammatory disease. Well, what about risk factors, risk scores that we use again in the general population to help us understand identify people with, health, uh, with higher risk. Again, these data are looking at just seronegative patients, so the seropositive are on my next slide, and so rheumatoid factor negative patient, patients, women and men. And when you look here at the observed pattern versus the expected, so green is predicted based on Framingham, uh, yellow is observed, and this is really pretty good. So rheumatoid factor negative patients uh, with respect to assessing their risk look kind of like we can reliably use the Framingham risk score. But when we look at RF positive women and men, uh, that changes entirely. And so uh, this is RA observed versus predicted 10-year cardiovascular risk from Framingham by age, and again observed in yellow and predicted in green. And you can see this sort of um, exponential rise uh, in uh, uh, observed um, 
uh, cardiovascular risk in women and men, telling us that the um, Framingham risk score really doesn't perform at all, doesn't give us uh, the prediction that we need in, 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 rheumatoid, in rheumatoid factor positive RA patients. And that was uh, just last year. Uh, uh, these publications are led by uh, my colleague Cindy Croson, who's the statistician on the team. Um, and so then we thought, well, okay, well, maybe there's an easy fix. Can we just assume that people with RA are like people without RA who are 10 years older? And so can we just add 10 years to the score? And you find that doesn't really help that much. I mean, so green is is predicted by Framingham, and the dotted green is, you know, what if we added 10 years and repeated that prediction, or added 20 years and repeated that prediction? It doesn't really improve it, because as you can see, the pattern of the curve is, is significantly different It's uh, in, in people with RA. And this is what led us, and actually led Cindy, to uh, uh, propose this theory of accelerated cardiovascular aging in persons with, with rheumatoid arthritis, because as you can see, if you wanted to model this, you'd have to put an acceleration factor uh, in there. And so what, what, what she modeled, just as a quick aside, in her study was uh, an acceleration factor. The one that fit the best, I think, was 0.2. So for every year that somebody without RA aged um, uh, physiologically, the RA patients aged 1.2 years, and so it was this acceleration factor is what best fit the data anyway. So then we turned from the uh, uh, statistical world to the laboratory and thought, well, maybe there's something. If, if the risk factors aren't helping us that much, and even a couple of them are a bit confusing because they're paradoxical, and the risk scores aren't helping us much, Maybe there's something we can measure, a biological marker, an immune marker, that would help us understand this risk and identify and categorize our patients more effectively. And so here we collaborated with um, our immunology colleagues, uh, Keith Knutson in particular, uh, to try and identify uh, markers for uh, 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 immune dysfunction. And, and, and indeed, we reported on these in the Journal of Immunology, probably the only paper I will ever <laughs> have published in the Journal of Immunology as an epidemiologist. Um, and I'll just give you a, a sense of, uh, of what these results showed without uh, uh, without going into a lot of detail, but uh, we did, and then in, in subsequent reports in ANR, found that this a signature of aberrant immune responsiveness, and I'd be happy to describe that, uh, did seem to be associated with myocardial dysfunction. Um, this immune response score that we developed with the uh, uh, immunologists appeared to differentiate patients with moderate to severe myocardial dysfunction uh, compared to normal and uh, mild patients. And again, this was just a few years back in, in, in ANR, and that was a significant difference. And then our second question was to try and understand, um, the, you know, the, this tool is great or that, that test is great, but if it tells us the same thing that we learned from clinical findings, then it's not particularly useful. And so we did an ROC analysis, and as you can see here, our immune response score is in yellow. The clinical model, used, using all the clinical variables, RA and non-RA, that we can find is in green. And when we put the two of them together, we do have this improvement in, in prediction. As you uh, probably all know, you know, the, a perfect ROC curve would be right out here is kind of a 90 degree, and moving into in this direction is improvement. So it did add value, if you will, to our understanding of, of risk by, um, uh, by measuring uh, these immune predictors. So what did we learn with respect to uh, uh, cardiovascular risk factors and risk scores of, you know, at a very high level? Well, the traditional risk factors, of course, are important, but they're relatively less important, if you will, in persons with RA versus those without, and that's because there's competition there. So inflammation, whatever that is, is competing with these traditional risk factors to get us to the outcome, and so the traditional risk factors appear to be less important in, in persons with RA, and some of them behave in a paradoxical manner, so it's important to interpret them in the, in the context of the RA disease. Conventional risk scores perform poorly in RA, and you kind of would expect that. If the biggest driver of risk is systemic inflammation, 
conventional risk factors don't have uh, risk scores don't have that uh, within the score, so they do tend to perform poorly, uh, and there isn't an easy fix. And novel biomarkers like this immune response score that I showed you might might be helpful in uh, improving our uh, ability to predict. So after kind of a decade of research and all of this work, still a lot of questions, but it seemed to us that we have enough data now to begin to think about how we manage patients, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, we have enough data now to, to change our management with respect to uh, cardiovascular risk uh, prevention in persons with RA. Oh, and uh, one of the key areas, and I'll uh, go through this part actually fairly quickly, is what does it mean for uh, the medicines that we use uh, in RA? Of course, in rheumatoid arthritis, um, we use all of these meds listed here, and we have a bit of a conundrum. And the conundrum is because a lot of these medicines have deleterious cardiovascular effects, uh, but all these medicines are all suppress inflammation, and inflammation drives cardiovascular disease. So how do we balance those, those two competing uh, um, phenomena? And uh, this is just a reminder with respect to NSAIDs. And we, you know, of course, we have the COX-1 and COX-2, and COX-1 uh, lead to inhibition, reduces the risk of thrombosis, but inhibits the cardiovascular side effects. COX-2 inhibition reduces the pain and inflammation, but blocks vasodilatory and antiplatelet effects. And so, again, we have this conundrum, and it's uh, it's difficult to manage. Uh, even with glucocorticoids, uh, believe it or not, there are actually some potential cardiovascular benefits, right? I mean, RA is associated with HDL and a high LDL-HDL ratio, but uh, uh, a, big, a big study by Martin Boers and colleagues showed that treatment with a regimen that includes steroids actually ameliorates this pattern, so makes the lipids better. Again, it's that inflammation lipid um, uh, uh, paradox. And the glucocorticoids uh, have been shown in some studies in RA to actually lower LP little a and homocysteine. Uh, so the, probably the biggest study that um, uh, tried to address this, and you don't have to look at the details, but was by uh, uh, Inma Del Rincon uh, again earlier this year, and she looked at uh, 779 patients, lots of follow-up uh, in their cohort in San Antonio, and basically concluded that, yes, RA is associated with a dose-dependent increased mortality, but there may actually be dose threshold where mortality is not increased. So again, even with steroids that we know are cardiovascular, is a cardiovascular risk factors, but it's a little different in persons with RA. And then other drugs that we use commonly in RA, this is a, uh, a study that's been uh, repeated a couple of times, but this is by Dr. Choi that shows that use of methotrexate, now this is retrospective, so we can't prove cause and effect, but use of methotrexate appeared to be associated with improved mortality in persons with RA. And as some of you know, uh, Paul Ridker and colleagues in, uh, uh, from the cardiology world now have a study ongoing looking at methotrexate uh, to reduce cardiovascular events. In the, in the general population. I can't remember CERT, right? I can't remember all his acronyms, but... Um. And what about TNF blockers? Well, TNF blockade, uh, as uh, many of you know, has been shown maybe for a decade or so now to be associated with decompensated CHF. So there were trials uh, started by the cardiologists, uh, the Renaissance and Recover trials, where there was there was some uh, suspicion that that TNF blockade could actually improve cardi cardiovascular outcome in persons with HF, and I was actually on the DSMB for those studies, and we stopped it because the treated people were dying at a higher rate than the untreated folks. And so, boy, TNF blockade looks like it's bad for cardiovascular disease. But then when we look at TNF blockade in persons with RA, we don't see this. We see the opposite. So, uh, again, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a confusing story. And this is a, a study, I think I have a little summary thing, uh, by Dan Solomon. Uh, from last year uh, that looked at a very nice study that uh, looked at 11,000 RA patients uh, who added TNF blockade and compared to those who were treated by non-biologic DMARD and found that TNF alpha blocking may actually be associated with reduced cardiovascular events compared to treatment with a non-biologic uh, DMARD. And he was careful to say, again, this is observational, um, it's an association, and we really need randomized trials to better understand this. 
So, you know, with all of that, what do we do in the clinic? And what we started at Mayo, and uh, if, uh, it's ongoing. Uh, also, similar similar uh, interdisciplinary care is ongoing at the Cleveland Clinic, and there are a few other places in the U.S. and several places in Europe that are beginning to develop these integrated multidisciplinary clinics with rheumatologists and cardiologists working together to reduce cardio, to see patients with RA uh, with the focus on uh, reducing cardiovascular risk. And so I'm just kind of giving you a sense of what we've done trying to translate all of this data uh, into clinical care. We've created uh, uh, something we call the Cardio Room Clinic. And again, with preventive cardiologists and rheumatologists who work together to jointly provide individualized cardiovascular risk assessment for patients with RA. I trying to watch the time here so I don't, you know. Uh, and these are the things we do in that clinic. Uh, uh, and it's, it's that clinic's embedded in our cardi cardiovascular prevention uh, clinic. Uh, cardiovascular risk profile, fasting lipids, you know, LP little a, all of this stuff. And then we do do an arterial health screening package, and that includes things like tonometry, looking for arterial stiffness, uh, brachiolarity reactivity, endothelial function, CIMT for plaque detection. Um, and for selected patients, uh, echo with strain, uh, we, and then we look at, you know, is there further need for testing, and we work very closely, this clinic works very closely with rheumatology because we believe that optimizing their RA treatment will also optimize their cardiovascular uh, outcome. So that's what we're trying to do, and uh, this is basically showing the same thing in kind of a uh, a, a flow diagram uh, form, um, and it's it's a work in progress. Uh, we're still we're still in the process of optimizing it and and uh, uh, figuring it out, figuring out exactly what we ought to do uh, uh, clinically for these patients and what we can do differently. And the nice thing about having a cardio room clinic is then we can monitor, we can collect data on on, on what we're doing and uh, monitor outcomes. Uh, with respect to clinical research uh, implications, it was also clear that one center can't really um, uh, can't really answer all the questions, and it was also clear that without a better uh, estimator of risk, uh, we're really not going to be able to. Um, uh, uh, get where we want to go in terms of reducing risk, and so we formed, um, uh, we call it Attack RA. See, we're learning from our cardiologists, and we need acronyms, our cardiology colleagues. And this is a transatlantic cardiovascular risk calculator for RA, and um, uh, we're able to uh, put together this consortium. Uh, it's growing, so I think it's, we have more than 13 centers now, but 13 centers from uh, over 10 countries are contributing data, and Mayo is the coordinating site, and you don't need to look at any of these data, but just to give you a sense that we have uh, reasonably standardized uh, definitions. I mean, they weren't collected that way, but they're gathered that way, um, of these traditional risk factors and of RA-specific risk factors. And so far, we have about 6,000 uh, patients in, these, uh, uh, in this consortium. And probably the most important thing is that we have 34,000 patient years of follow-up and about 500 events. All of the analyses that we do are event-driven. Um, and the first thing that we looked at, which is uh, uh, was presented at ACR, was okay. Well, how how close or different are how different are these centers? And the answer is extremely different. So there is remarkable heterogeneity. This is uh, uh, percent free of cardiovascular of any cardiovascular disease. Remarkable heterogeneity, center to center, even after uh, adjustment. So this was our t attempt at adjustment. And so one of our first tasks is to try and understand this heterogeneity from center to center and uh, what we can do with, uh, with the data together. And this is a step just to be honest, that a lot of groups that pool their data don't go through, uh, and I think it's just critically important to understand the heterogeneity across across this large cohort. But even with all of that, we had a, a very some very preliminary um, analyses and a preliminary risk score created, actually just on the first uh, 314 events. Uh, not 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 all 600, and and this is not again the easiest slide to understand. But uh, the this is Framingham because it's got all these different axes. This is Framingham risk score, so people that fall into this 
uh, box would be low, moderate, high, and very high. And uh, this horizontal line is the mid middle risk of each, F uh, of each FRS category. And so when the risk estimated by our preliminary attack RA measure um, is more than Framingham, it should be above the line. And you can see that at least this preliminary uh, tool, uh, as you can see in these spots that are circled, uh, we were able to re appropriately categorize uh, significantly more patients uh, with this uh, attack RA tool than uh, with simply with Framingham. So we're moving in the right direction. So for example, Framingham classified 54% of our patients as high risk, and this uh, new tool uh, identified 64% as high risk. So we're getting a little bit closer to the truth with, um, with this tool, but there's a whole lot more more work that needs to be done, particularly around the heterogeneity um, uh, question. So with all of that, um, uh, uh, what do we conclude? Um, starting with this uh, clinical observation that people with rheumatoid arthritis seem to be having more heart disease. Well, we know that people with RA die prematurely and that they experience a higher risk of cardiovascular death of ischemic heart disease, particularly silent MI and, and sudden cardiac death uh, that may occur early, may even precede the diagnosis, uh, formal diagnosis of RA uh, and, and are silent. That heart failure in rheumatoid arthritis tends to be atypical in presentation more often with preserved ejection fraction and associated with a higher mortality. And myocardial dysfunction, especially left ventricular diastolic dysfunction, uh, precedes heart failure, uh, tends to precede heart failure in persons with RA and perhaps may be detected by, by strain echo. Um, Persons with, with RA have worse outcomes after cardiovascular disease, especially death after heart failure, but also after MI and higher utilization of health services. With respect to prediction and prevention, uh, again, the traditional risk factors are useful, but they contribute less. They, they help us understand what's going on less than they do in the general population, and some of them behave in a paradoxical manner. Inflammatory markers appear to be strong independent predictors. I didn't show you all of those data, but they certainly add value to our ability to predict. Um, risk scores perform poorly, indicating the need for, for something more RA-specific, whether it's a biomarker or a risk score or both, um, and uh, a, a measure of uh, systemic immune responsiveness, and that's our immune response score, um, may be an independent predictor of left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. With respect to clinical care and clinical research, uh, the drugs that we use in RA, NSAIDs, glucocorticoids, methotrexate, biologic and non-biologic, DMARTs, all have complex effects on cardiovascular risk, uh, some through the interaction, actually, of cardiovascular risk factors. I mean, all of us are aware that the IL-6 inhibitor is one of the first things that happens with treatment of those drugs is that lipids go up. Um, and so it's important, again, to understand that uh, uh, the effects of those drugs in the context of the systemic inflammation. Uh, we believe that interdisciplinary and, and multidisciplinary care is really the best management option for these patients at this point in time. And uh, even though I'm an observational researcher, uh, I say, well, we've learned a whole heck of a lot from our observational epidemiological studies, but really in order to uh, uh, move to the next step, we need large randomized safety studies, large multicenter consortia like the one I showed you to uh, advance knowledge and improve our outcomes. And I'll end again with these uh, quotes that I like. And, I, you know, again, observation-driven observation systemic research, uh, I think done right, can actually transform the way we care for our patients. And I just acknowledge uh, a huge team of collaborators, um, not only in rheumatology, but in epi and cardiology uh, and uh, immunology, cardiology, yeah, I mentioned uh, CV echo. So it's just, uh, it's just been a great, a great pleasure. It's been a really fun, uh, uh, fun project, set of projects. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much for that wonderful uh, tour. I had a question to start, off, uh, start us off about whether there's any role for the pericardium in this story. It used to be an old saw that the pathologist would say, oh, there's always pericardial disease in patients with RA. Um, any 
you say that? I, I think there is a role, but it's actually a relatively small role. Yeah, I rem you know, that's what, that's what I learned. But I think it's a relatively small role, and it doesn't, you know, what we see here, the ischemic heart disease and heart failure is close to sort of garden variety disease with, with, with a few exceptions. That, and we just didn't see a whole lot in terms of pericardial disease. So, so. Uh, Rick? Um, two questions. One is you didn't mention statins at all. I wonder if that was call out of effect, irrespective of lipids. Uh, and the second one is how does that immune, that composite immune score, perform non um, so I, I kind of inferred, so what, what's your question with respect to statins in particular? Is there any kind of effect that if you, if, you, if you take RA patients, irrespective of lipids, is there any kind of statin treatment alone on any of these readouts? Okay, so there's actually, we, we've done some work in that area, a number of others have, and so it does appear that statins are as effective in people with RA as those without, and some of it, there are cardiovascular prevention clinic, I mean, that's the pharmacologic intervention that we use there largely, um, and the important uh, issue there is what's the threshold, and the threshold uh, for our patients with RA is a lot lower than it is for those without RA because, again, we're not very good at estimating risk. So if they look, Framingham, if Framingham tells you they're low risk, a bunch of them are already, are actually at intermediate or high risk. So we have a much low, that's why we use, do these arterial health studies and other things to help us understand what the true risk is. Uh, and so, yeah, we have a much lower threshold for using statins uh, in persons with RA. Um, than you know the general guidelines would would suggest, and there is good data that they you know appear to work as well. And there's some data. The question is, you know, what about the myalgias and such? Uh, there is some data that it's not any worse than in the general population, but 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 that that I'm a little bit more uncertain about. It just has been less well studied. The immune response score. Um, we actually have not looked at it in the general population. Um, well, that's, that's not true. Um, we, we haven't looked at it in the general population, but we did look at it uh, in patients with, uh, we actually did look at it in the general population in that small study that I showed you, and it doesn't, doesn't really do very much. Uh, it's really not, not very predictive at, at all. So it, it tends to help us when there's uh, the level of immune dysfunction that you see in persons with RA. Dr. Katz? And I warn you, he's a very sharp cardiologist. Uh-oh. I was a very sharp cardiologist. <laughs> uh, this is wondrously confusing. And, uh, I yeah. think one of the things that's gotten me confused is that focusing on risk factors, these are risk factors not for heart disease, but for blood vessel disease. Right. And myocardial infarction is not heart disease, it's blood vessel disease. The victim is the heart. And I think the evidence, so that, and I, I, I'm just not at all surprised that the risk factor analysis is not helping you because now we go back to the real problem, which is the heart. It's not clear what's going on in the heart because you have patients seem to be dying of heart disease and heart failure, but the ventricles are not dilating as evidenced by the normal preserved ejection process. So then the question is, what really is going on in the, in the myocardium, and what are these patients dying of? Are these patients dying of arrhythmias? Or they die in a progressive heart failure. You know, we in the hospital with increasing frequency until we finally die of, of the cal of refractory pulmonary edema. So what are these patients dying of? And uh, are you these sudden deaths that you're calling heart attacks? Is this really myocardial infarction? The question then is, what's going on in the coronary arteries? I think that would be extremely useful to look at the coronary arteries. I, I think that's critical data as to what's going on. In terms of atherosclerosis, what's going on in terms of the myocardium? What does myocardial pathology look like? Because one, there should be some markers if this really is a cardiomyopathy rather than usual garden variety vascular disease. This doesn't have the criteria. The, it doesn't have meet the criteria for the usual so-called diastolic heart failure because you don't have an excess of hypertension. So the whole, this, this seems to be a form of heart disease that to me is totally unfamiliar based on the data you presented. So 
All you have to do is straighten me out. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so wondrously confusing is wonderful for getting funded by NIH year after year, right? I mean, so 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 I kind of want to keep it wondrously confusing for a while. Um, just with, I'll, I'll try, and some of the answers to your questions, of course, aren't known. Uh, with respect to what's going on with, with the vessels, there have been studies, we've done some that I didn't show, uh, trying to look at what's going on in the heart. And so the study that we did was a, a, an autopsy study, looking at people who died of MI who had RA, people who died of MI that didn't have RA, had a, had a pathologist look at the pathology, blinded to whether they had it or didn't have it, and do an I'm not, I'm not as familiar with all this, you know, grade and d degree of, uh, of atherosclerosis in their usual kind of grading systems. And they also were able to look at things like uh, plaque instability and, and, and plaque. Um, there's also been CIMT studies comparing RA and non-RA patients. And the, the theme that seems to run through all of those, including our studies, is that there's uh, less sort of uh, the atherosclerosis grade is lower, but the level of plaque instability is higher. You know, so there's more unstable plaque that, that has been able to be, that, that's dem demonstrable in people with RA than people without. And so that's an interesting finding. You're shaking your head? It's puzzling because you don't have the dilated parts. Characteristically, if parts that's had myocardial infarction dilates, and yet you've shown the yeah. infection fraction that it's normal. Yeah. There's just something weird here. Yeah. And, you know, some people have said, so nobody's looked at myocardium. I don't quite know how to look at my, myocardium. Um, and the hypertension story is a little bit confusing, right? And so the data isn't exactly clear. We don't see a lot. A couple of other centers don't see a lot. Some centers do see excess uh, rates of hypertension, which kind of would lead to the vessel stiffening and all of that. There's certainly increased, increased rates of lung disease in per persons with RA. So maybe this is all stiff, stiff vessels, stiff vessel disease, and it's, it's not so much myocardial disease. We, 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 don't, we don't really know. Dan? So um, this is a uh, question about mechanism. So the, um, the observation that the seronegatives behave differently than the seropositives suggests that whatever mechanism it probably is part of the adaptive immune system. But um, if you look at cholesterol and uric acid, another, another uh, rheumatic disease associated with increased cardiovascular risk, both of those seem to be mediated through the innate system. Um, do you have any, any way of telling whether what part of the going awry here? Um, well, I mean, certainly when we did our immune response score, which, you know, very quickly, it's, um, uh, it, it's immune response because we take uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells and stimulate them ex vivo and then uh, look at the pattern of response, the pattern of cytokine response due to a, you know, predetermined set of stimulants, and then that pattern became our, our score. And so when we looked at that and identified, you know, which Part of the response seemed to be parts of the response seemed to be associated with the outcome. It was both, so we weren't able to say, well, you know, it's adaptive versus innate. It seemed like there were uh, some parameters in both that were that were contributing to that score anyway. So that's that's the the best that we know at this point. If there are no other questions, I want to thank you so much. For well, thank you. A great hour. Thank you.